Hello, folks. Welcome to the 36th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at The Doomed Rider, a folktale from the Scottish Highlands. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. first published in a collection of folk tales from 1889 entitled Folklore and Legends, Scotland, edited by Charles John Tibbets. Like so many myths from the British Isles, it appears surprisingly late in a written record, as it was probably passed orally prior to its recording. The editor who sourced this story, Tibbets, has almost no information regarding his life available online. However, his publishing record is rather lengthy and almost entirely consisted of collections of folktales. He was British and likely had training in anthropology, writing, or history. Perhaps classical studies? It's unclear. Uh, what is certainly clear is that he was likely some sort of noble or uh, some kind of at least bourgeois member of the gentry because he would not have been able to source these stories so regularly and publish so easily as it was much harder to publish back then because you had to have access to a printing press, which required you to spend a fair amount of money to do so. His output was very quick as well, suggesting that he worked with some sort of team that supplied him with stories to collate and swiftly publish into larger works. Now, this kind of exploitation of working-class people's stories for capital gain remains a through-line in anthropology, folklore studies, and the creation of anthologies collating myths and tales today. Most people will not buy a short story that is a few pages long, but when placed with many other stories of similar length, these short stories seem to be worth the money. Now, I'm certainly guilty of that. I own a lot of collections of myths, some of which I use to uh, create this podcast. But at the same time, I generally try to buy used. That kind of goes for every book because these massive publishing companies, well, they're really quite bad. <laughs> you know, I do want to support authors, of course. That is also important. But the reality is, is that I don't have that much money either. So I got to go to the half-price books and the, um, the used bookstores of the world. It's just what I've always done, and uh, I probably will continue to do so. Now, if you want to learn more about Scottish history, you can check out The Fox Outwitted. It's one of my earlier episodes. I think uh, episode seven, I think, uh, somewhere around there. 
And to give you a very quick overview of Scottish history, at least what I've told so far, because I have not gotten to the modern day, I just haven't, <laughs> and I didn't feel like doing a history research for this one because, and I think this is the first time I'm going to say this, but I will be going on hiatus after uh, three more episodes of this podcast because I am producing uh, my fourth album currently and finishing up my screenplay that I've been working on. So I have lots of projects going on. So uh, I, I want to ensure that I do not neglect those things or allow this podcast to fall into disrepair. So I am going to take a probably three month long hiatus from this uh, podcast so that I can work more directly on those things. But I will be returning to this project. So uh, it won't be that long. Uh, so, you know, check out old episodes if you haven't yet, all that stuff. And I will announce this again on the last episode before I go on hiatus, so you know. Now, the Scots were a diverse people mostly because of topology. They were cut between highlands and lowlands, and the Brionic lowlands took up a lot more Celtic culture, the Lachain culture that influenced Ireland, also influenced the Brionic tribes of Scotland, and it didn't get quite as far into the highlands. So in many ways, the highlands were seen as the native Scottish. And so the Highlanders were often seen as the native Scottish, whereas the Lowlanders, despite also being native to that area, were somewhat seen as lesser Scots in many ways. Uh, this continued as the Romans conquered mostly the Lowlands, although they did conquer the Highlands, but they quickly retreated because of the bad winters. They called Scotland Caledonia and really only entered it briefly and then left because winter and it was just very far away from the Romans. And so they had little interest in conquering a place that had few resources, unlike Britain, which had more resources and was a little closer. That's why uh, England got much more heavily colonized by Britain. Uh, as time goes on, the British become the main colonizers once the Romans leave and eventually begin to essentially subjugate the Scottish, not to the level of the Irish, because the Scots would marry into English families, even, even the royal family, and would rule England and Scotland jointly at certain times. But they did remain separate, and there was certainly a power struggle between the Scottish peoples and the English peoples that the English effectively won through... Uh, larger military and just more familiarity with colonization techniques, I think, as well, because they had a lot of practice on the Irish at the time, because the English colonized the Irish first and then began to mess with the Scots, because, well, the Scots were closer to home. It would have been uh, much more uh, difficult to colonize them first, I would say. Now, you can go listen uh, more fully to everything that happened uh, to Scotland prior to like mid-1600s in my uh, previous episode on a Scottish myth, The Fox Outwitted. So go check that out if you really enjoy Scottish history. Now let's tell this myth.
writer. Nakonan is as bonny a river as we have in the North Country. There's many a sweet sunny spot on its banks, and many a time and aft have I waded through its shallows when a boy to set my little scouting line for the trouts and the eels, or to gather the big pearl mussels that lie so thick in the fords. But its bonny wooded banks are places for enjoying the day in, not for passing through in the night. I know how it is. It's none of your wild streams that wander desolate through a desert country like the Avon, or that come rushing down in foam and thunder over broken rocks like the foyers, or that wallow in darkness deep, deep in the bowels of the earth like the fearful Oudgrant. And yet no one on those rivers has mere or frightfuller stories connected with it than the Conan. One can hardly saunter over half a mile in its course from where it leaves Conton till where it enters the sea, without passing over the scene of some frightful old legend of the Kelpie or the Water Wraith. And one of the most frightful looking of those places is to be found among the woods of Conan House. Ye enter a swampy meadow that waves with flags and rushes like a cornfield in harvest, and see a hillock covered with willows rising like an island in the midst. There are thick murk woods on either side of the river, dark and awesome, and whirling round and round in mossy eddies, sweeps away behind it, and there is an old burying ground with the broken ruins of an old papist kirk on the wrap. One can see among the rougher stones the rose-wrought mullions of an arched window and the trough that once held the holy water. About two hundred years ago, a wee maiden maybe, or a wee lass, for one can never be sure of the date of the old stories, the building was entire, and a spot near it, where the wood now grows thickest, was laid out in a cornfield. The marks of the furrows may still be seen among the trees. A party of highlanders were busily engaged a day in harvest, in cutting down the corn of that field, and just about noon, when the sun shone brightest and they were busiest in their work, they heard a voice from the river exclaim, The hour, but not the man, has come. Sure enough, on looking round, there was the Kelpie standing in what they call a false ford, just fronting the old kirk. There is a deep black pool bathed above and below, but in the ford there's a bonny ripple that shows, as one might think, but little depth of water. And just in the middle of that, in a place where a horse might swim, stood the Kelpie. And it again repeated its words, The hour, but not the man, has come. And then, flashing through the water like a drake, it disappeared in the lower pool. When the folk stood wondering what the creature might mean, they saw a man on horseback come spurring down the hill in hot haste, making straight for the false ford. They could then understand her words at once, and four of the stoutest of them sprang out from among the corn to warn him of his danger and keep him back. And so they told him what they had seen and heard, and urged him either to turn back and take another road, and stay for an hour or so where he was. But he just wouldn't hear him, for he was both unbelieving and in haste, and would have ran the ford before they could say, hadn't the highlanders determined on saving him whether he would or no, gathered round him and pulled him from his horse, and then, to make sure of him, locked him up in the old kirk. Well, when the hour had gone by, the fatal hour of the kelpie, they flung open the door and cried to him that he might now go on his journey. Ah, but there was no answer. And so they cried a second time, and there was no answer still. And then they went in, and found him lying stiff and cold on the floor, 
with his face buried in the water of the very stone trough that we may still see among the ruins. His hour had come, and he had fallen in a fit, as t'would seem, head foremost among the water of the trough, where he had been smothered. And so you see, the prophecy of the Kelpie availed nothing. Now, this is one of our first true ghost stories, like a just a story of conflict, and oh my goodness, this is this is crazy, right? <laughs> a, a mythological beast appears, a kelpie. Now, if you're not familiar with the kelpie, the kelpie is a creature found in a lot of different Celtic myths, but it a lot of them are, are in Scotland, from my understanding, and in the British Isles. Although the kelpie might be present in other. Celtic cultures too, but it was a creature that would appear at strange times, dark times, and would call almost like a siren song to people, travelers that were coming through the area, and would cart them away. And this is a basic Kelpie story, one that is, and this is, and this is a slightly less basic Kelpie story because although we have the same result of a drowning, because the Kelpie was known for drowning its victims, taking its victims down into a marsh, bog, or pond, and drowning them therein. No, this one, the man who is traveling through is still affected by the Kelpie. The Kelpie is almost a psychological eldritch threat, something that messes with our minds in a fundamental way that makes us do things that we would never do. The man is urgent to move on and, and get through. And so it is very strange that he drowns himself in the end, in this trough. And once again, we see this connection with water and the Kelpie. So it's clear that the, it's the Kelpie's force, a mental force, psychological power that controls this man. Now, let's look at the position of the Highlanders in this story. The Highlanders hear the Kelpie, but know of the Kelpie, and know not to mess with it, and to just let it be, not to get anywhere near it, and to just keep threshing their corn. The man who comes through, they, they save him, ultimately. They could never have guessed that this man would be so affected by the Kelpie that he would drown himself. So they did the right thing, ultimately. But remember that the Highlanders would have been a representation of the not only native people of Scotland, but a connection to the land, a connection to the indigenous, a connection to an anti-Britain sentiment. Because there was that that ran through a lot of these myths, even into the 1800s when this myth was recorded. Although I have the feeling that it was probably a myth that was orally told around campfires. I mean... Just the way it's structured, especially at the end of like, and they heard nothing from the, from the old Kirk, which I assume is just like a little place to keep, uh, like a little barn almost, or a little uh, shed. I, I've never heard that term Kirk before, but, and I actually uh, modernized a lot of the language. If you go look up this story on the Gutenberg Free Press or just online, you'll see that it uses a lot of like older ways of spelling English words. So I did modernize it so that it makes sense to us. You could probably hear a couple moments where I didn't know what the word was, so I didn't know how to modernize it. You know, we try our best on this podcast. <laughs> now, this is a very classic little fun story. And here's the thing. 
Most of the stories that we have talked about thus far are important in a way that is intrinsic to the story, that we can't get away from, that we have to talk about. And that's just not true of all stories. A lot of stories are just for entertainment. And it almost hurts me to say that because I like to think that everybody has this like great esoteric understanding of the world that they, that they want to get across in their writing and the way they make their art. But that's just not the true reality of the world. A lot of stories are just interested in entertaining us. And I found this story entertaining. I think the idea of a Kelpie appearing and giving this prophecy and then like disappearing and it coming true, ultimately. The hour, but not the man, has come. Yes, the man has not come to the Kelpie. He is stopped by the Highlanders, but surely his hour has come. So I don't think the prophecy has come to nothing as it says at the end of this story. I think that's an odd way to end it because the prophecy did come true the man's hour came, but he did not come to the Kelpie. The Kelpie is correct in this story. And like so many other stories in which prophecies occur, it does suggest something about fate. And this is a deeper meaning that we can make sense of, that omens and prophecies are real. Now, I don't mean that literally. I don't think that prophecies and omens are real, but it suggests that the Scottish peoples believed in some level of fate, of destiny, which was common across a whole number of different cultures and still is today. There's a lot of people that believe in fate and destiny. I don't have a problem with people believing in that. I just don't personally. I really don't believe in anything personally. Uh, so for me, it's more so that I'm interested in what people believe and what they are interested in using to make sense of their world. Because I just don't, fate has never made sense to me as a concept because there are too many coincidences, little things that don't matter. How would it all be fated? It doesn't make sense. Because the world works as almost a clockwork. And maybe this is sort of my science background creeping in, but the world works from action and reaction, not just a straight line. Fate is almost like a straight line, the way it's talked about in many stories, that once it is stated, it will come true. And this just isn't real, I don't think. We have free will. We have the ability to change things. I think fate is ultimately a tool of fascism at times because it suggests that things only move in one direction, that the events that occur are positioned by some greater power, by some divine power. I mean, this is the same idea that was going on in absolute monarchies and uh, empires. Uh, in like Rome and uh, the Seleucid Empire and just uh, ch the Chinese Empire. There's so many different empires that have existed, but all of them made use of this concept of the fate, especially of uh, monarchs and rulers, that they have this divine right of rule. Now, the doomed writer says nothing about this directly, of course, but we can extrapolate these understandings based on a smaller representation in an entertainment-based myth. Someday I'd like to tell this story around a campfire. I'd like to do so with some more pauses, looking at people, right? You can hear me sometimes pause in a myth, and this is how storytellers tell myths and stories in general, and they'll look at people. This is actually a very important part of storytelling. So if you are an amateur storyteller, 
then make sure, especially if you are not doing it in a podcast format like I am, that you look at people when you tell a story. You can look down at what you are reading occasionally, but look up, look around at your audience, look them in the eye, because that's how you really engage with people. Leave silence uh, to build tension. My final thought here is about the connection between the Highlanders and the Kelpie. It's odd to me because it shows that the natural world, which is represented by the Kelpie in this case, especially the violent parts of the natural world, can only be navigated by those who have a connection to that land on which they live. One who travels through does not have that same connection. And the Scots were probably particularly aware of this as nobles and messengers for nobles, more likely, would be traveling through this location of Scotland, especially lowlands that probably had these fords and false fords, pretty regularly to take messages between England and Scotland as there was regular communication between the two. And so it demonstrates that these travelers were somewhat considered separate from the Highlander role, the role of the native person in Scotland. And I think that's very interesting. I think it's also very interesting that the Kelpie is associated with sealing away these travelers, not just the uh, random people who live in a village close by. That's a pretty common motif across so many myths, is some monster coming into town and terrorizing people at night. We can find it across almost every culture because the idea of a wild animal coming in and disrupting your status quo is fundamentally scary. We see this today in creature features, right? There's this uh, great little movie that I'm excited to see called Beast uh, that has, uh, you know, a lion disrupting the status quo, right? It's still a very popular uh, form of entertainment. And I, I'm a big fan of, of creature features and, and that style of film because I think that they are unloved. They are not given the love that they deserve. And in a way, the Kelpie is subverting this trope because it's not going for the Highlanders. If anything, it just tells the Highlanders what's up. It's like, hey, there's going to be a guy coming through and his hour is up. He might not come to me, but his hour has come. So... The Highlanders try their best to help this man, and you can see that they are being represented in as positive a light as they can be here. There is not even a shadow of a doubt that this is the typical us versus them dynamic, that the traveler represents the them and the Highlanders represent the us, right? These are broader concepts that I am using. They are a metaphor, right? The idea that us is what we consider ourselves to be, our community to be, and them being everything external to that. The traveler is the external. And the Kelpie, being an intrinsically natural thing to that land, can only affect those that travel across that land, that don't give homage to that land. Remember that the, this man is just trampling through as fast as he can. Does not even notice that it is a false ford, not a normal ford because surely he could ford a normal river, but a false ford? Perhaps that means that it is uh, it sinks more easily. I think that's what it is trying to say there in that one section where it suggests two pools. I think it's saying that there is a pool on top and a pool below, one that uh, you can sort of travel across for a little bit, but then it begins to sink. And this is how bogs work. So uh, it, it makes sense as this was a common 
landscape feature. This could also be teaching an etiological function as well that you don't want to cross a false ford because it is very dangerous and you could die. Highlanders will stop you, right? The native people will stop you because they know about these things. And so you will drown if you go anywhere near that false ford, near what is the Kelpie. This is probably a historical reality that occurred multiple times where people would wander out into the woods, cross a false ford, thinking that it was just a normal river, and they'd fall apart and they'd die and wouldn't come back. And that was probably how the Kelpie began as a concept across a number of different places, but especially Scotland. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, sharing this podcast all over the internet, and engaging in discussion within the comments. I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocane.com. That's E-C-H-O-C-A-I-N.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring Children of the Sun, a myth from the Inca Empire. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Omen.